everyone. Welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today. Today, I have Josh from me looking at the problem of evil. What's up, Josh? I'm doing good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's super good. Early in the morning for me when we're recording this, it's like 7.58 a.m. right now, but we're waking up and super pumped to look at the problem of evil. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fine. I've been growing a bit of facial hair from November recently. I, I might have been copying your style to grow a bit of facial hair, but you know, as an Asian, it's quite difficult for me to grow it at all. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> it makes you look older. That's what I always tell myself. Indeed. The stubble makes me seem older than I am. So I we so. roll with it. Um, but today, Josh and I are going to be um, commenting on Bart Ehrman's opening statement and debate he did with Dinesh D'Souza a little over 10 years ago at Gordon College on the problem of evil. So Josh, is there anything you want to say before we dive into this? I think it's a very interesting debate. I think Bart Ehrman definitely does raise a few interesting points, and I'm very looking forward. I'm looking forward to interact with them with you. Yeah, I'm super pumped, and this is uh, very interesting. And there's a lot of th thought-provoking things. And as always, like we super grateful for Dr. Ehrman and all his ideas. And we're obviously going to disagree, but this is just in pursuit of truth and just giving our thoughts on kind of what he has to say. So, you ready to get this thing going? Yep, definitely. Alrighty, here we go. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Uh, how many of you would consider yourselves to be committed Christians? Okay. How many of you are pretty sure you're going to disagree with everything I say? <laughs> okay. Just three of you. Very good. How many of you are being honest? <laughs> it's a pleasure being with you. I, uh, I started out my study of the New Testament and theology and my uh, understanding of the world as a very committed Christian. When I was uh, in high school, I had a born-again experience, and after high school, went to the Moody Bible Institute, where I studied for three years to receive a diploma in Bible and theology. After Moody, I went to Wheaton College, uh, which uh, you students, I'm sure, all know. Uh, and uh, after Wheaton, I went to the Princeton Theological Seminary, where I did a Master's of Divinity degree, being trained for ministry. Uh, after my Master's of Divinity degree, I was the pastor of the Princeton Baptist Church uh, for a time. Uh, my point in mentioning this is that I want it to be clear that I started out as a firm believer, uh, a uh, solid evangelical Christian, and stood in the evangelical tradition for uh, a number of years. My views changed over the years to what you will be hearing uh, this evening, and I want to give you some uh, sense for why they changed by uh, explaining what happened to me uh, and what happened to my thinking over a period of time. Okay, here's the first bit we want to pause at. There's not too much to talk about here, I think. It's just helpful to see, like, how, at least when I think about like Airmen and the story, like it's helpful to like have a story to kind of connect these things to. Um, so it's helpful to see that, but there's not really anything like with regards to the problem of evil that's worth responding to at this exact moment. So I don't know if anything you want to add, Josh. I think it's basically what you're saying, but I think it's also very interesting to see how everyone interacts with the problem of evil on a different scale. And I think with Ehrman's case, it is indeed, and I think it represents the fact that the problem of evil is one of the biggest problems and I quote unquote problems in the sense that it's not always just a philosophical problem, but an emotional problem that everyone has to deal with and everyone struggles with. And that's just something we have to keep in mind that there's really a different phases of evil and suffering that we interact with all the time. And I think that's helpful when you're looking at like, especially like Airman, like he's not claiming to, and we're not claiming to give like a total defense or total like bringing forward of the problem of evil. It's more looking at like a specific kind of instance of like a couple things that Airman brings out. And that's helpful to think about as we keep on progressing here. Definitely. When I was doing my PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary, I was also teaching at Rutgers University, uh, teaching undergraduates. And one semester, I was uh, asked to teach a class called The Problem of Suffering in the Biblical Traditions. This was a course that was designed to deal with what the Bible has to say about why there is suffering. The technical term for that kind of discourse about suffering is called theodicy. It's called theodicy. Uh, it comes from two Greek words, uh, which mean God's justness. How can God be righteous or how can God be just given the state of affairs in this world? 
Given the misery and the suffering around the world, how, how is it all fair if a God is in control? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, why is there suffering? This was in the 1980s, and uh, frankly, at the time, I had trouble convincing my students at Rutgers that there was a problem of suffering. <laughs> they were uh, tended to be middle-class students who uh, uh, were uh, doing very well, thank you very much, and didn't realize, uh, many of them, just how enormous the problem of suffering could be. This happened to be during one of the major Ethiopian famines, and so one of the things that I did was to bring in newspaper clippings and pictures from the newspaper of, of a woman who was uh, starving to death with a child at her breast who couldn't get any milk who was also starving to death, and pointing this to my students and saying, this is a problem. How does one explain this if there is a God in charge of this world? Well, the class was not so much about the philosophical problems of suffering as about what the Bible has to say about it. And studying the Bible, what it has to say about it, my students and I came away with uh, two major points that are quite interesting and relevant for tonight's debate. Okay, so there's a few things here we can talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things I think about when I'm thinking about the problem of evil is first that like, well, when I still don't really disagree with um, Dr. Ehrman at least yet, because like, there is a problem of evil. Um, and obviously, like, there's different kinds of problem of evil. So I don't disagree with him. And everyone's going to have different experiences. So say, like, me living in, like, eastern United States, we're going to have different experiences with evils than someone, say, living in, like, sub-Saharan Africa or Ethiopia. Uh, so I agree. Like, you know, like, we're going to have different perspectives and things like that. And it's super important. And I don't think we can be, like, just dismissed and say, oh, there is no problem of evil. And I like um, Bart's kind of... I don't want to call it a tactic because it's not really like trying to like win points, but just showing us what we can, we can agree with. Like, and this is something he closes with too, is like, we need to alleviate suffering as we get towards the end. Like talking about like, yeah, there actually is this problem and like Christians and atheists and anyone else, like we can all agree that there is this problem. So that's all I really wanted to comment on here. Yeah, I thoroughly agree with you on that point. I think there are so many different formulations of the problem of evil and it really, it's really important to approach them on an individualistic basis instead of saying, well, there's one theodicy and that theodicy attempts to solve all the problems of evil because I don't necessarily think that that's the case and we might touch on this a bit in uh, the future of this video but I think that when we're talking about the problem of evil and this might just be clarifying digital gnosis's point if I'm pronouncing his a name properly it's, it's it, when I say that the problem of evil can be emotional problem is not to say that all problem of evils are emotional problems that's definitely not what I'm trying to say but rather that the existence of evil and suffering poses a, a variety of different struggles both for the believer and the non-believer, in the sense that while some people, their main response to the great suffering is an emotional attack. It's not like I see my, I have a good friend who goes through serious depression and I see him suffering, I see him struggling. My direct response to that isn't like, turn on my philosophy hat, let's talk about um, nihilism and the meaning of life. Like that's not what, what the right solution is to that individual problem. Am I going to lose my faith because of that problem? It's not a philosophical problem, so I shouldn't be responding it in a purely philosophical way. And I think that, and this is what I mean when I, we're talking about the natures of theodicy, the different types of theodicies, is precisely that we have to take into consideration each individual account and respond on, in an appropriate fashion to each individual one of them. And when we start mixing up these different problems, then we start having confusions and then our arguments just seem to go on and people talk past each other precisely because we don't necessarily understand the purpose of each theodicy, the purpose of each problem of evil, and it's really appreciating the different kind of facets and aspects, which is very important here. Mm -hmm. I think that's super good, Josh, because we're hoping to like try to build this problem where it's not just like one singular issue. There's a variety of things and they come in different folds and there's different aspects to this. And you can't just like solve the problem of evil with like one clear, like one liner, like done. Um, it's a very important topic. So yeah, I completely agree with you. The first point is the Bible has a lot of things to say about suffering, but many of the things that different authors say about suffering in the Bible are, are at odds with one another. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, the prophets, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, page after page of the prophets, 
proclaim that the reason God's people are suffering is because God is punishing them for their sins. They've done things wrong, and that's why God has brought so much misery upon them. Famine, drought, epidemics, military disaster. God is doing this to his people in order to get them to return to him. The book of Job disagrees with that point of view. According to the book of Job, people who do what God wants are the ones sometimes who suffer. It is the innocent who suffer. Whereas the prophets said if you would return to God and uh, that the suffering then would be, uh, would be alleviated, Job indicates that people who turn to God, in fact, are the ones who experience the most misery. It is the innocent, not the guilty, who suffer, and God allows it even though he could stop it. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation in the New Testament also disagree with the prophets. Daniel and Revelation indicate that it's not God who causes the problem of suffering, it's the forces of evil who cause suffering. And it's not against people who are guilty, as in the prophets, it's against people who are innocent. The book of Proverbs disagrees with all of the ones I've mentioned so far. In the book of Proverbs, it's neither God nor the forces of evil that are causing suffering. The universe, according to Proverbs, is set up in such a way that the righteous are rewarded and the sinners suffer. If you are righteous, according to Proverbs, you won't suffer. If you are sinful, you will. But that contradicts what Job had to say, that the innocent suffer. And Job is contradicted by what the prophets have to say, that God punishes only the guilty, and those who turn to God are rewarded. The first point that comes out by a study of suffering in the Bible is that the different biblical authors disagree with one another. There are discrepancies. Okay, lots of stuff here. Uh, so what do you want to tackle first, Josh? I think the most interesting thing here is really about, well, what exactly are what exactly is evil in the Bible? Are all evils the same? And is the purpose of all evils the same? Because I think that what uh, Bart Ehrman does, and I think that your notes touch upon this very beautifully, is the idea that each individual situation, the suffering is very different. Bart Ehrman looks at all the evils and say, well, okay, the purpose of this evil in Job is the same as the purpose in this evil here, but then they're not the same, so they must be contradicting each other. But when we say evil, that evil itself is different in each situation in the sense that when we're talking about Job, that evil is about a test, it's about a trial or about some relationship about a good person suffering despite his innocence, and that might be part of the development of Christ's work on earth. But then if you look at the Israelites, for example, their evil might be of a bit of a different nature, and that might be a different situation. And even in the Israelite situation, you might say, is that really evil if they're getting what they deserve for disobeying God? Of course, there's further questions about this. But what we're noticing is really the case that we have to take every situation in the case-by-case -case situation. Say, well, what exactly is the purpose and nature of evil in this situation? And develop from there instead of saying, well, all evil are the same. The reasons for these contradict each other. There's a massive problem. I think that's a very simplistic uh, way to look at it. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that Dr. Ehrman, I'm a little concerned here that he tries to draw like these like absolute conclusions from looking at certain books of the Bible. So for example, like when I think about the prophets, it seems to me like they're specifically looking at evils that are a result of the sin of Israel. They don't say like it doesn't come to the judgment that all bad people suffer and all good people don't. It's looking specifically at like Israel um, and like the surrounding nations. And then like with Job, it doesn't again draw the conclusion that all good people suffer and bad people don't. It's looking at a specific person in Job. And then with like Daniel and Revelation and like the apocalyptic literature, it says like maybe certain evils are the result of demonic powers. But it doesn't say that all – once again, it doesn't say that all bad people suffer and all good people don't. And then Proverbs is looking at like actions, general rules for life. It's not making, again, these like absolute like kind of rules where if you do X, it, Y is guaranteed to follow or anything like that. So when looking at this section, that's just the way I kind of address it. I just don't think that um, these texts, like these books of the Bible are trying to make absolute judgments, trying to explain all evils. It's looking at specific parts. So, yeah. I definitely agree with you. And I think that there's not much I could add on this front. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into the next pit here. He's going to be talking about um, human freedom. So here we're going to get into a little bit more stuff. 
The other point that came out in this class that I taught, uh, that I realized I think maybe for the first time in a big way uh, while teaching this class, is that the Bible does not teach the point of view that many people hold today about why they're suffering. I, I would imagine that if we did a survey of all of you here tonight and asked you why is there suffering, one of the principal reasons virtually everybody would say is it's because of free will. At Rutgers, I started calling this the robot explanation. Uh, I called it the robot explanation because uh, that was the term everybody would use. It, it goes like this. If God had decided that we didn't have free will, we would all be programmed like robots. And we wouldn't be able to do anything we wanted to do. We would only do what we were programmed to do. But if we were programmed only to do good, of course, there'd be no suffering because we wouldn't hurt one another. The, the fact that we have free will shows that we are not robots, and therefore, uh, we can do evil to one another. We can hurt one another. We can oppress one another. We can kill one another. This is, uh, this, uh, is uh, as I said, what I call the robot explanation. And uh, the Bible actually does not have the robot explanation in it, in part because there are no robots in the Bible, but in part because the Bible has other explanations for why they're suffering, the ones that I've just uh, given you a minute ago. There are, of course, hints in the Bible that people can do harm to other people. But as I studied the problem with this class at Rutgers, I came to realize that there are problems with this robot explanation. For one thing, it's an incomplete explanation that doesn't solve the problem of why they're suffering. You all will remember a tsunami that killed 300,000 people. Whose free will caused that? Or more recently, an earthquake in Haiti that killed 230,000 people. Whose free will caused that? The problem with the free will explanation is that it doesn't explain natural disasters. Okay, what do you want to see here, Josh, with regards to human freedom and natural evils? Well, I think that the first thing is, is that when we raise the free will defense, the free will defense isn't there to solve all types of problems of evil. And, and that's why I kind of tried to say in the first place when we were talking about the nature of theodicy is that a theodicy isn't a one key fits all kind of solution where you're like, well, the free will defense, that solves everything. The free will defense solves a lot of problems like moral evils. That doesn't mean the free will defense directly applies. Of course, there are parts of the free will defense that I think applies to natural evils as well, to a greater or lesser extent. But in most situations, the free will defense is purely focused on moral evil or mostly focused on moral evil. And if we're saying, well, let's judge the free will defense of a theodicy which is aiming to solve a moral evil and then judge it by its ability to solve a natural e problem of evil, then you'll realize that that theodicy is not very useful and you're judging it with the wrong standards. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to judge an orange by how much it tastes like an apple. Is this a good apple? And you give me an orange. You wouldn't get very far with that kind of reasoning. And in the same way, I think that we have to take uh, theodicies in a case-by-case -case, um, standpoint. Yeah, I think that's good. There's a few things I think about. First, like, I agree with, like, Bart Ehrman that, like, human freedom can't account for, like, completely, like, answering the problem of evil. Like, we think about, like, we did a response video way back when to, like, Graham Oppie's um, logical problem of evil that he presents. And, like, his his version doesn't mention, like, you can't just appeal to free will and get out of, like, Oppie's argument from evil because it talks about this idea of going from perfection to imperfection. Um, so I agree with Bart Ehrman here that, like, you can't just appeal to free will. But it is part of the story. And, like, I mean, this point's brought up a lot, but, like, I don't think the Bible has specifically mentioned free will to, for us to be able to, like, use it as like a defense or a theodicy um for example like also the bible doesn't bring up quantum physics that doesn't mean we can't like deny its reality like we can um reason and go beyond like what the biblical texts say um though they are like an authoritative guide so first i think it's just helpful to think about some of the goods that come from free will so or just like human freedom so like it seems to me like human freedom is just intuitively good it's good to like freely form our character um that's good and also like seeking god choosing to seeking god out of our freedom is a good thing and looking at, like, the problem of natural evils, like, unless you're claiming that, like, human freedom can account for all the evils, um, you don't have to, you don't have to, like, explain natural evils with the free will defense. Like, you can appeal to other things um, to explain, like, why there are natural disasters. Like, I can think of things, like, um, they preserve human freedom. There won't be disasters in heaven. Um, but there's reasons that they can do, such as, like, forming our character, as Swinburne talks about, and 
there's a reason that we aren't made in heaven, which is something that Aaron is going to bring up in a minute here. So, I mean, that's just like generally how I'd address this idea is just like, there's a lot more that can be said here. And like, there's specific like defenses and theodicies we can look to to explain like the problem of natural evil. And we don't have to use human freedom. I definitely agree with you. And I think that there's a good reason why we see that the Bible doesn't raise so many free will defenses is precisely because a lot of the characters who experience great suffering aren't really experiencing suffering caused by great evils, except for maybe, and as we've alluded to previously, maybe, maybe the Palestine, not the Palestines, but the Israelites struggle with the Egyptians. Those might not be technically evil. Of course, that's moral evil, and you might be able to wrestle with it in via the free will defense. But most of the suffering, like Job's suffering, like the suffering, the sickness we see in the New Testament, a lot of those stuff are not via free will necessarily. And they're a lot due to natural evil sicknesses. And, then and as a result, the response to that evil does not necessarily need to be, oh, free will defense all the time, because that free will defense was never called for in the first place. And that's perhaps something we can um, bear in mind. Hmm. Yeah, that's super good. Moreover, I think the free will explanation is philosophically problematic for a reason that a lot of people haven't thought about. Most people I know who think that, uh, who have the explanation that it's all because of free will, uh, most people I know who advance that idea are themselves Christians. These are people who believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. They also believe that there will be no suffering in heaven. And so one might ask, will there be free will in heaven? If there's free will in heaven, but no suffering in heaven, that must mean that it is possible to have a world with free will, but without suffering. So why don't we have a world with free will, without suffering? Well, it obviously wasn't set up that way, but it means that the free will explanation doesn't really explain the problem. Okay, uh, the problem of heaven here is, I guess it's not exactly the problem of heaven, but uh, what do you think here with regards to free will in heaven, Josh? Well, I think that free will in heaven is definitely something which is quite interesting. The first time I heard it, I was like, wait, that does make a lot of sense. But, but when you think about it a bit further, I think that the first question you have to ask is, well, who is carrying out that free will? Because there's some idea that God, even though he's completely free, doesn't carry out evil. And in the same way, it does seem that the reason why people carry out evil in the world is precisely because they are they have evil tendencies instead of it just being, well, oh, if there's free will, then there must be evil. Because I don't necessarily think that there is necessarily that link there in the sense that every being which has free will must carry out evil. The only reason how the problem of free will in heaven causing evil to occur is if we do hold to the idea of if you have free will, there must be evil. But I don't necessarily think that that is a correct kind of link or an idea. And as a result, I don't think his argument fully holds in this situation. Yeah. And I think there's a couple options for the, like the theist or the Christian here when with regards to like addressing this problem. Um, for me, like there's one where we could say like we do have free will. And then when that I think that we could say we don't have free will and it's not a problem, um, but there's purpose in our freedom here. So first, like the first option is like, once we experience the fullness of heaven, why would we ever want to sin again? Um, so like with our human freedom, like once we're like in heaven, like in the presence of God and whatnot, and like we fully experience like the beauty of God and creation and whatnot, then like, why would we ever want to go back? Like, why would you ever, after experiencing the pain of like putting your hand on the stove, why would you ever freely choose to do it again, knowing like the pain it causes? So that's one option where you preserve human freedom. But I also think that like we could have free will now and not in heaven, but then there's still purpose in our freedom now and the purpose in the evils now. And this is through like forming our character. So for example, like at this exact moment, I don't think I ever have it in my capacity to murder a baby. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, say if I like told myself to, or something like that, I just couldn't do it. And it's cause I know it's wrong. Um, and why is this? It's because of my choices that have formed my character to where I've gotten to the point where I've never done this. Um, so this seems similar to like the Christian idea of sanctification that as you like make choices, you're going to form your character. So the point where you maybe like reach heaven or entirely sanctified, you just can't do evil because you've just made these choices that have 
like led to you to not doing this. Um, and this seems to me like there's still value in our freedom now, but it could also like, I could say like, Hey, yeah, there's no free will in heaven, but there's purpose in our freedom now. Um, cause they were forming our character at this point. So that's just a couple options I see by my lights with regards to this important question. I definitely agree with you on that. Moreover, I should say that the free will explanation doesn't resolve what I would call the theological problem of suffering. The theological problem of suffering is very simple. If God is all-powerful, he can do anything that he wants. If he's all-loving, he doesn't want people to suffer. Any more than you want people to suffer, and you're a loving person. God can do anything he wants. He doesn't want people to suffer, and yet people suffer. How does one explain that? Well, that's the problem of theodicy. Most Christians think that God intervenes in history, intervenes in our lives, in order to deal with suffering. God intervenes in our lives in order to deal with suffering, so that when something goes wrong, we can pray about it, and God will help resolve the problem. If that's the case, why doesn't God intervene more often? We all have experienced suffering in our lives, and we know of others who have. After I finished this teaching, this class at Rutgers, I experienced a lot of suffering myself, as did other people. Cancer, taking away loved ones in the prime of life, teenage suicide, birth defects, failed marriages, a friend who escaped the killing fields of Cambodia, homelessness, poverty, starvation. We all know people who have had these problems. I kept reading about issues pertaining to suffering. The Holocaust, six million Jews murdered in cold blood. Genocides in Cambodia, Bosnia, Rwanda, Darfur. A flu epidemic in 1918 that killed 30 million people worldwide. The flu, world poverty and starvation. I came to a point where none of the biblical answers or traditional answers were satisfying to me. Most of the Bible has one thing in common. It believes in a God who intervenes in our world. That is the basis for the uh, traditions in the Old Testament of God saving the children of Israel and making them his people. It's the basis for the belief in Jesus' cross and resurrection, that God intervened in our world for good. God's intervention is what's behind our idea that prayer works. But if God intervenes, why doesn't he? In our world, every five seconds, a child dies of starvation. Every five seconds. In our world, every minute, 25 people die from diseases from unclean water. Every hour, 300 people die of malaria. If God intervenes, why doesn't he intervene? The Holocaust, genocides, terrorist attacks, starvation, poverty, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. Eventually, the answers did not satisfy me. Okay, so what do you want to say here, Josh, on this point? I think he says a lot of things which are worthy of notes, and I think that what he says is very interesting. But I think that it also highlights a very interesting fact about Christian faith and the view of Christian faith in the world. And of course, you feel free to disagree with me, but I think that in the past, it was very easy for, for me to think that, well, okay, God just makes this world for us to be happy. Happiness is the main goal of this world. But then, then like what he said, I had to, as the head of Shaftesbury House, as my head of house, I deal with a lot of these problems that he suggests, like, like kind of the problem of a teenage drug addictions. I, I sometimes interact with that as well. Some teenage alcohol addictions, um, teenage suicides like what he says of course and, I, and it's something we struck i struggle with a lot and and that leads me to think well perhaps the purpose of this world is not to say well god is there to intervene to cause a maximum pleasure the maximum happiness on this world whatever you want to call this but rather it is the purpose of this world for us to draw closer to him to understand greater with him and this is kind of like the soul making theodicy and this idea that the purpose of the, this world was never to just live a happy life and if we're judging god's interventions by us living a happy life, then we're just completely missing the picture, the bigger picture in the first place. And I think that a quote from the Bible is very interesting here. It's like, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I think that that is so just so true. It's like, 
I was talking with a few friends in my school and they were like, well, what exactly would it make you to become a Christian? And I was like, well, and one of them was like, well, okay, I saw God. And I'm like, well, okay. But then the disciples said they saw God. How do you know, how do you kind of differentiate the situation? They're like, well, okay, they're a hallucination. I'm like, how do you know you're not hallucination? Well, I don't know. I just believe in myself. Then what if your good friend tells you they saw God? Oh, they're hallucinating as well. So it seems that a lot of situations come up and they're like, well, yeah, of course I'll believe in God in this situation. But if that situation comes up, they'll probably start doubting their senses as well. So I think that's what we do need to realize is that we have to take into consideration the purpose of God's intervention and the purpose of the world in the first place. And if we lose sight of that purpose, then Bart Ehrman's arguments become a way bigger problem than they actually are in reality. And we have to take everything from a case by case approach. And that's kind of what we have to do when we're dealing with theodicies and the problem of evil. Yeah, I think in the beginning of his like little line in this clip that we played, he talks about the idea of God being all loving means that he doesn't want people to suffer, which is just something that like, I don't think is true. Um, like, I think that like suffering isn't intrinsically bad. It can be, but it's not just like, intri- like not all suffering is bad. Um, so I think it's interesting here to think about, like he talks a lot about this idea of like God not intervening, which is interesting because that goes against the intuitions of like most people in the world. It's a very like Western post-Reformation idea to say that like there aren't miracles occurring today. Um, like for example, like I don't want to be the person that just like, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it just like brings up a book and says, this guy proved it. But like Craig Keener talks a lot about, in especially like underdeveloped countries, a lot of people think miracles occur. Um, this was my experience. Like when I traveled to like Zambia is like, if you told people there that like God doesn't intervene, like there's no supernatural supernaturalistic forces they're going to be like thinking you're crazy um so like to a lot of people um at least there, like god is intervening in a part of life uh there so i i don't even know if that's true that like god isn't intervening when we're looking at like say like starving children um or things like this but it doesn't get away that from the fact that there still are like starving children and diseases that we still have to address as a theist so i think there's some reasons josh that i'll just kind of talk about where like some reasons why i think god doesn't always intervene in like every way so we talked first about like preserving human freedom, which is good for things such as like choosing God and building their character. I also think that evils allow for soul building. So for example, you can have like courage in the face of adversity, which is a good thing. Um, there's also like this a knowable natural order, which allows for things such as like science and a predictable universe, uh, which is valuable. And there's the, I like the idea of like evils being part of like an appreciation of heaven. Um, as Christians, we can point to like this world being fallen, like it's an imperfect world. And those are just a few things, because I think that when we're looking at, like, the problem of evil, once again, like, there's not, like, one decisive proof we can look to and say that explains everything else. Um, But there's a lot of different, like, facets we can look at and, like, to try to understand these things. So, yeah, that's kind of, at least for me, how I'd kind of generally address this problem. I think building on your point about about Zambia, something very interesting that I've noticed as well, it's that I have this, I went to Kenya and Uganda, and I have um, correspondence with some people there. and, And to them, like, someone recently was struggling to put food on his table and that was a very suffering situation he was struggling from very uh, disease and there was of, of course a lot of suffering in his life but to him he showed or at least to me one of the strongest demonstrations of faith he was constantly praising god in our discussions and our um dialogues and what i think is very interesting is that well we all this idea of quote-unquote god intervening is something which is very different to every person because some people have to say well oh god interfering is going to be like oh God is um, sending um, a lightning strike from heaven and suddenly food appears as a banquet in front of you. That's not necessarily how God intervenes all the time. There are other ways which go beyond that about how people say, well, I feel God's presence. For example, some of my parents my well, my my mom sometimes has a calling that while God is telling to do something, she goes, does it. And then it helps out someone's life significantly. Is that God intervening? Well, of course, 
the atheist might say, oh, that's psychologically proven as some random subconscious, whatever, right? But then in, in reality, if you look at it under a theistic worldview, that is God intervening. So it really depends on the situation. And I think it's very, and as, as you say, it's very, it's way too easy to just dismiss it and say, well, God actually doesn't intervene at all. Just that perhaps he sometimes just doesn't intervene in the way that we might want him to intervene. This is like for part of me where I have this intuition where a lot of the problem of evil can is also just like a conversation about like the problem of heaven. Like why didn't God create everyone in heaven? Um, because it's like this question of like, sure, like maybe God intervenes in the cases of like some, uh, but like, why not just all? And why not everyone? Why not just like alleviate like all of like hunger or all of natural disasters or things like this? And that's when you have to give a more general um, and looking at like specific like the honesty of defenses. But I mean, at least for me, like bringing up like the people that he has healed, or at least the people that would claim that God is like working their lives is to say that like a lot of people in these like developing countries would claim that God is working in their, in their lives, in their world, in different environments. And yeah, so. I think that's definitely true. And I think that you can tie that idea perfectly with uh, kind of our idea previously that we were discussing about the purpose of the world. And we've also talked a bit about that in a few previous live streams, especially the one with Graham Opie. And it's kind of the idea that if like at the end of the day, we know that the purpose of miracles isn't necessarily to always prove that God exists because sometimes people given with the proof mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily believe in miracles and if it's the case that god also knows how we would react to the miracles then clearly we have at least a reasonable uh, situation to suggest that maybe the fact that god appears to some people is precisely because he knows that those people who experience miracles would do something about it and actually fulfill their purpose in the world whereas if they go heal someone else and i'm not trying to say this in a very sadistic way but rather if the, if if they're going to heal someone else and they're never going to attribute to god and maybe start attributing to themselves then maybe there isn't much point to do a miracle in that situation that miracle will be completely useless and of course this could be seen as very dry and sadistic but then this is of course uh, we're talking about the philosophical problem of evil instead of the more emotional side of it and i think that there is a bit of a difference there as well and that's something we can keep in mind when we're talking about well why does god save some instead of others or help some instead of others mm -hmm. yeah that's super good josh i'm trying to think i mean i think we covered a lot of our bases here and yeah, it's a super important problem to think about. So do you have anything else you want to add before we get into this next clip? Nope, I think the next part's quite interesting as well. All right. And I came to be unable to affirm the very basis of my Christian faith. I became an agnostic. I no longer believe in the God of the Bible. I do not believe in a good and all-powerful God who intervenes in this world. Let me stress that it's not my goal to make anyone else an agnostic, and it's not my goal to deconvert anyone from whatever their faith is. Uh, it's not my goal, it's not my desire uh, at all. It is my goal to get people to think and to be more tolerant of people who think differently from them. Many of you who are Christian would agree with the statement that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But does God love everyone and have a wonderful plan for their lives? Even for those who are starving to death, who are crushed with horrible diseases, who are crippled with pain, whose lives have been torn apart by the death of a loved one? Does God love the homeless, the hungry, the maimed, the murdered? then why doesn't he do something about it? Okay, what do you want to say here, Josh? Well, I think that, first of all, we have to keep in mind what we said previously about kind of the purpose of the world, and that could explain why God doesn't intervene in every single situation. But I think there's also this kind of idea that, well, is it really helpful for humans if God just solved all our problems? Because I, I'm just thinking about my closest friend who is suffering from severe depression and, and suicide, and you're thinking, well, would it necessarily... Would it actually be beneficial for him if God just suddenly snapped his finger and say all oh, the problem suddenly goes away? I would not necessarily say that that's the case. And I don't necessarily think that he would say that that's the case as well. Like I've talked to him about it. And he's like, well, 
that doesn't necessarily solve any of the fundamental problem of what is at stake here. So I think that when we're looking at these situations, we really have to take into consideration the context. And sometimes it might be the easiest, the most intuitive thing to say, well, yes, we want God to get rid of all the evil. And if he doesn't get rid of the evil, he doesn't care. But in reality, I think that the situation is so different when we're talking about it on a practical basis such that, well, God sh sometimes just shouldn't be doing it all the time. And and of course, take, bearing in mind what, what we discussed before is that God's solving all the problems doesn't actually solve any the larger scale of the issue and doesn't solve the fact that the purpose of the world has never been to promote happiness and absolutely humans which are saturated with pleasure, but rather people who are developing and working towards him. I think that's good. I also, I had a conversation with Randall Rouser a little bit ago and he talked about this idea of like, would you rather just be placed on top of the mountain or would you rather climb it? And I think for most people, like we'd rather climb the mountain. And then I think you can experience more fully the joy at the top of the mountain um, through climbing it rather than just like just being placed on the top of the mountain. Um, so for example, like for me, like when I think about like suffering in my past life, like obviously suffering is bad, but like I've learned a lot and grown a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people would agree obviously like I haven't had to deal with things such as like starvation or like torture or things like that. So obviously like each person can have a little bit different experiences, but I think that's an important thing to think about when we're looking at this uh, important question. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that your idea about kind of like, there is something we're working towards kind of the soul building theology is very interesting because I think that if we are measuring what is more important, the physical world or the, or the spiritual world, if that's how we want to uh, say it, is it more important that we we kind of solve the problems immediately in this world or do we have eternal life with God and I think that if we consider every suffering in the world compared to the love of God and our relationship with him for infinity or forever then what we soon notice is that well it's it's almost a very easy trade that you have between one and the other it's like well of course you'll choose to have infinite pleasure well not infinite pleasure but infinite relationship with God and of course I'm using infinite not in a mathematical sense but in more of a, a metaphorical sense, the infinite love and relationship with God, I think would significantly outlight, outweigh any suffering in the world, such that by having this having this um, kind of balance put together, you would you would kind of weigh weigh the second as more important, such that if the first can help the second, then the second then the first is in some sense good in um in a further way, and that God by not intervening would help provide further opportunities for people to jump into the second world by converting. And of course, I, I I apologize. I haven't been the most clearest by elucidating what I said, but I hope I do make uh, make sense with what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think that's right. There's an interesting class that I had in high school. And we talked a lot about like growing and learning and things like this. And this class wasn't related at all to the problem of evil, but I, I reflect on it a lot when I think about this. We talked about like when you're learning like various like leadership, like traitor attributes, like it's better just to be told them or to like experience them in a fail and then to grow and learn from them. And like everyone in the class all the time would say it's better to like experience like failure or to do something wrong and then learn and grow from it from rather than just being like hand told, just like don't do this, which is really interesting to me because like it seems like then if we could put this in like analogously to like the problem of evil, like for a lot of people would be better to like experience like suffering and whatnot and then realize like how bad it is then just to be told like hey yeah suffering's bad don't do that and just like to never suffer um so it seems like to me like just like even like human nature like desires to like learn and grow through experience rather than just like being told what to do so that's another thing when i land where i'm like our experiences of like suffering and things are i think super important and valuable because they help us to grow and have like a more like fulfilled life than we would have had if we just never suffered in the first place 
Mm -hmm. I think that I'll just try to pick up on this point before we go to the next chapter, because I don't think it kind of raises this problem in the next section. But just to finally just respond a bit to digital gnosis and also just a bit of a point of my own is that this that we're, what we're talking about here is, is mainly a philosophical and we're not trying to solve any emotional problem of evil. And I think it's quite clear and it's evident, I think, everyone which exists that the emotional problem of evil does exist. I don't think anyone's going to deny that the emotional problem of evil doesn't exist because, of course, if you see a depressed friend or you see some starving children in Africa, the first thing that you experience, unless you're that kind of devoid of emotion and humanity, I'm not saying that in a mean sense, but I think it's quite clear that the first thing you feel when you experience such suffering is not, I have a philosophical problem of evil, I now have my logical deductive syllogism. Your first problem is an emotional an experiential one. I think that that is precisely what I mean when I'm saying there is an emotional problem of evil. And it's nothing about an apologetics meme or whatever, because I don't necessarily think that that's kind of what I'm saying. And if that's what he thinks, he completely misses the point. But I think that we have to recognize that most of the stuff we do in these theodicies is not to say, oh, there's no emotional problem of evil, because that emotional problem of evil does exist to literally everyone who exists on this world. I don't think anyone here, apart from maybe a psychopath, doesn't think it exists. It's just that with everyone else, we have to just separate the emotional problem of evil from the philosophical evil. And that's perhaps the first thing we have to do when we approach a problem of evil. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it, Josh. So I appreciate that. One viable response is to say that God wants us to do something about it. And I absolutely would agree with that, if I believed in God, that God wants us to do something about it. We should do something about suffering in our world. We should commit ourselves to doing something about our suffering in our world. We should work to alleviate the suffering in our world. Absolutely, yes. But that doesn't answer the theological question. Why doesn't God intervene? I can't believe in a God who intervenes in the world to make it a better place. If you do believe in such a God, you need to figure out how to reconcile your faith with the facts of reality. How do you make sense of this world of pain, misery, and suffering without coming away with a simple answer? A basic answer, a simple answer, how do you have something that matches the complexity of the suffering? This is the biggest question you will ever face as a Christian and even as a human being. Why is there pain and misery and suffering in the world? It's a question that we should all acknowledge. And whether or not we find a satisfying answer, we should all realize that there is enormous suffering out there. And all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, should do everything we can to relieve it and to help those in need. Thank you very much. All righty, that's the last little bit there. Um, so... Yeah, what do you want to say here, Josh? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what I want to say perhaps here is that I I completely agree with the idea that it is going to be the biggest problem that any Christian faces because the problem of evil is going to be a significant problem to literally everyone on this world, as he says as well. And I think that it's very interesting that he says it's to everyone as a human being. And I think that also raises a very big problem to the atheists as well in the sense that, well, the problem of evil is there to say, well, Evil is a significant problem with great significance and meaning in our lives. Evil, which occurs around us, moral evil, suffering, death, loss of loved ones, those are all significant problems that we have to deal with. And I think points directly to the existence of some transcendent meaning in our lives. Because I think if you look at it from a purely materialistic a worldview, what, what exactly do you reach? You, you reach the idea that we're all just random cells. We're all just animals who are dying all as a result for evolution. But then if that's the case, why do we experience or why do we attach so much more significance to the death of to the death of humans and the death of like a fish who's also been as evolved as, or at least developed and evolved in the same processes as humans if you want to take evolution? 
or if you or if you don't want to take evolution even still you're like well why is this suffering so real why do i feel it and i think that that precisely points to the deep reliance or the deep kind of belief in the significance and value of humankind which we just which is at the core of human existence and it poses a question both to the theist and the atheist of why does the evil mean so much I think that's right, Josh. Like, because when I think about, like, we've tried to give a lot of, like, defenses or theodicies um, looking at this video so far. But then, like, for me, this is, like, personally subjective and emotional. So don't just take this as, like, how I saw the problem of evil. But I, when I reflect on, like, say, like, how theism or Christianity answers the problem of evil, like, I see some sense. But then when I think about, like, um, in an atheistic world where the suffering of the one-year-old is just this terrible thing and that's the end of it, um, or the murderer who does these horrific things and gets away with it and then they just die and that's the end of it. And that's it. Like, that's the end of the story. Like, that seems so much more unsatisfying of an answer to, like, the problem of evil than um, the Christian theistic one, uh, where you have, like, a just perfect God who's going to, in all things at the end, um, be a just judge. So, like, to me, it's a lot more satisfying. Um, and this is totally subjective and emotional, again, this last part. Um, but Christianity just satisfies, um, I guess you could say, my soul a lot more when looking at the problem of evil. And then I did want to make one more remark. Like, I'm very grateful for Dr. Ehrman and what he does here, because he talks about alleviating suffering and, like, you may be like an atheist or agnostic and listen to this video and just disagree with everything Josh and I have to say. And like, that's fine. Um, but like hopefully you can agree that like alleviating suffering is a really good thing. And like, no matter what your like worldview is, we should work to do that and give money to good causes and um, do this in our own lives. And I also think that like Dr. Ehrman does a great job of doing this. Cause like, I know with like his blog and like his speaking fees, he always, I'm pretty sure gives it all to charity to like help like the impoverished and struggling people around the world. Um, so this isn't something he's just saying, but he really takes it to heart. So I have a lot of respect for Dr. Ehrman for doing that. Um, so yeah, that's all I wanted to say here. I don't think I have much to add apart from the fact that I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that it's very important for us to help those around us and also help those in need. Cause I think that that's a very important thing as well to share that love with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Josh, we're at the conclusion here. Do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up here? No, I think it's an ple absolute pleasure to be on this channel. I always love these discussions with you. And I'll, I'll love to have these discussions and even more discussions with you in the future. If that's all good with you. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure we'll be doing more. So yeah, super grateful to you for joining me and spending some time to prepare for this and listen to this and hear your thoughts. And yeah, super grateful, Josh. So thanks for coming on. And thank you to Dr. Bart Ehrman for his opening statement here. A lot of really great things to think about and super value, super grateful for him and value his opinion. And I hope you do as well. Even if you completely disagree, like Dr. Dr. Ehrman, you can like see where he's coming from at least and just use this as, um, as part of your journey in searching for truth and like trying to understand the world. So yeah. And I want to say thank you again to everyone who listened, to Harry and Kelvy and Nathan and everyone else. We're so grateful for you. And if you enjoyed the channel, uh, consider first subscribing, leaving a like. That helps a lot. It helps us grow. And if you really value our content, you can become a patron or a YouTube member. It's just pinned on the chat. And the YouTube members, you can just join right there. Um, and that really helps us out and keeps us going. But one last time, Josh, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so much fun. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. God bless.